This is EM Cases, and I'm Anton Hellman. Now, before we jump into episode 90, Slow and Low Poisonings, I just want to make sure that you weren't missing out on some EM Cases goodies. First, the latest Waiting to be Seen blog is on a hot topic, Physician Scorecards and Providing Physician Feedback by Dr. Amy Cheng, and the next Waiting to be Seen will be on Conflicts of Interest for Publication in Foam. We've also got a great Crit Cases blog on Airway Nightmares by James Brokenshire. That'll be up soon. And in case you haven't already, don't miss out on the new free EM Cases feature, Just the Nuggets. Now, in the new year, we'll be launching two new video series, Rapid Reviews and Pocus, Pearls and Pitfalls. More on that in the new year. And now, we're slow and low. You hear an overhead call, doctor to recess. You enter the room, approach the patient, get a one or two second gestalt of how the patient looks, and you glance at the cardiac monitor. You see the dreaded combo of bradycardia and hypotension, slow and low. And you're thinking, I really don't have much to work with here. Now, there aren't too many things that cause bradycardia and hypotension, and we'll get into the differential soon. But one of the things we need to think about whenever we see a patient who's going slow and low with bradycardia and hypotension is an overdose. Beta blockers, calcium channel blockers, and digoxin are some of the most frequently prescribed cardiovascular drugs. And inevitably, we're going to be faced with both intentional and unintentional overdoses of these drugs in the ED. If we can recognize these overdoses early and manage them appropriately, well, we'll save some lives. So in this podcast, we're going to run through four cases. First, an unknown low and slow overdose, where we'll outline a general approach to these patients. Next, a pediatric calcium channel blocker overdose, where we'll illustrate the notion a single pill can kill and review best practice for decontamination. A digoxin overdose, where we'll give you some ECG pearls and talk about antidotes. And lastly, an adult calcium channel blocker overdose, where we'll get into managing the peri-arrest patient, as well as use and misuse of lipid emulsion therapy. And to help us along the way, our learning journey, it's been way too long since episode 27, actually. (laughs) I'm very pleased to have back in the studio, Canadian talks guru, Dr. Margaret Thompson, medical director of the Ontario Poison Control Centre and EM doc at St. Michael's Hospital in Toronto. Thanks so much for coming back on the show, Margaret. My pleasure. Awesome. And Dr. Thompson, I remember a few years ago when I was at St. Mike's that you used to do back-to-back overnight shifts on Friday and Saturday night. And I remember you once telling me that that was because that's when you see the best talks cases. Now, you've been practicing for what, 25 years? (laughs) Okay, we'll go with that. (laughs) 25? Okay. (laughs) Maybe a little bit longer. Now, are are you still doing overnight shifts at St. Mike's? I still do overnight shifts. And weekends are best for good drugs. (laughs) (laughs) Incredible. So for those of you who aren't familiar with St. Mike's, it's the big Toronto inner city emerge where they see probably the most talks than any hospital in Toronto, for sure, maybe even in Canada. And our next guest today on EM Cases, new to EM Cases, a rising star in toxicology, also an EM doc at St. Mike's, Dr. Emily Austin. Welcome, Dr. Austin. Thanks, Anton. Now, I remember it wasn't so long ago that you were a resident. I do remember that the U of T sim team was competing in a sim war. I think it was at Cape and you were leading the team 
And it was the most exciting thing ever. I had no idea who you were. And I was like, who is this incredible doc who's just like <laughs> kicking butt? And of course, you guys won. We had a great team. Yeah. It was really fun. And all good teams need good leadership. So, <laughs> so good for you. Yeah, it was awesome. All right. Let's jump into the first case. A 60-year-old man with a history of hypertension rolls into your recess seizing. The nurse gets IV access. You give 10 milligrams of IV diazepam and the seizure stops. You get a set of vitals and you guessed it, low and slow. The heart rate is 30 and the blood pressure is 70 on 40. Eek. So Dr. Thompson, let's start with, before we get into the slow and low overdose management, let's take a little bit of a broader view on this case. What else are you thinking of in terms of the differential diagnosis for the patient who comes in with a low blood pressure and a low heart rate, the things that you really can't afford to miss? Well, in that particular case that you're talking about, Anton, it's kind of unusual for someone with slow and low to also present with a seizure. So that sort of changes the way that you're looking at this. Is it just lack of perfusion? And was there some dysrhythmia before he came in? And so had a dysrhythmia that self-resolved and now he's slow and low. Or is it because there is some structural lesion going on, for example, that in his brain, he may have had a bleed. And so he may be coning. And so that would be something you got to look through the whole physical exam and look, you know, has he been hypertensive before? Is he at risk for having a subarachnoid? So that would be one of my differentials. Hypothyroidism would be another if you're looking at the big, broader picture. Obviously, overdoses. Emily, help me. What else is... (laughs) As someone who just wrote her exam, <laughs> you know, I think when I think about that slow and low patient, some of the other medical things would be hyperkalemia and hypothermia, myxedema, coma, like you've said, hypothyroidism. Right. Mm. It's I, interesting you said hyper-K, because when we talk about DIG, of course, we'll be talking a little bit about hyper-K yeah. and how there's some overlap there. Yeah. I think you can throw in, it's sort of been alluded to, but like an MI with cardiogenic shock. Yeah, that would probably be yeah. one of the more common yeah. ones, actually. Yeah. yeah. Okay, so we're talking MI with shock, hyper-K, myxedema, their spinal cord injury. Absolutely. Which thankfully we don't see too often. A hypothermic patient in the right setting, right? Like if we're heading into winter, somebody coming in, they could be really bradycardic and also hypotensive. Especially in Canada. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. (laughs) All right. Now, what about talk stuff? So there's these three cardiovascular drugs that we're going to be getting into detail about. What other poisons can cause low and slow? So the most likely things besides beta blockers, calcium channel blockers, and digoxin are also the sodium channel blockers. There are multiple drugs that are like tricyclics and have this membrane stabilizing effect is what we call it. That will be slow and low because they don't perfuse if you don't, you know, have appropriate cardiac kick. So the sodium channel blockers include the tricyclics. Carbamazepine is a sodium channel blocker. Flexoril, the Norflex, those are sodium channel blockers. Some of the the usual antipsychotics are sodium channel blockers. Propranolol is a classic sodium channel blocker, as is cocaine, which is not usually appreciated. Okay, so just to drill in there a little bit. So cocaine is a sympathomimetic, and the overwhelming common vitals you'll see with that are hypertension and tachycardia. 
But it's also a local anesthetic, right? And the way that all of the local anesthetics work is by blocking sodium channels. And so as your concentrations of cocaine are increasing, you kind of deplete your norepinephrine. The duration of sympathetic overdrive then causes a lack of response to the cocaine. And then the concentrations are higher so that your sodium channels are now blocked. And they can deteriorate from the sinus tachycardia, the hypertension, to the bradycardia hypotension picture later in the overdose. That's a great pearl. I got to admit, I haven't seen enough massive cocaine overdoses. Either they're dead before they get to me or when they come in, they're hypertensive and tachycardic. So that's good to know that actually at the time when you when they're really, really sick and you still have a chance to save them, they might be low and slow. Right. Great. Totally crashing. Okay. So that's in terms of the differential, what to think about. It's sodium channel blockers. It's the three cardiac drugs we're going to be talking about. I think there's also some less classic toxicology stuff that we can throw in there. Stuff like opioids or sedative hypnotics, things that decrease our central sympathetic drive can also lead to people coming in bradycardia, a little bit hypotension, maybe not 70 on 40, but maybe easily 95 on 60 or something like that. And that we actually see all the time. All right. So in terms of the other poisons that can cause low and slow, besides the three big cardiac drugs that we're going to be talking about, we got to think about opiates, we got to talk about sodium channel blockers, and think about alpha agonists like clonidine. And Dr. Thompson, how are you going to sort through this differential? So you've got this patient in front of you, they're low and slow, and you've got this differential in your head. What's your approach to sorting out what the most likely diagnosis is. I think we go back to medical school to start, right? What's what's the history? And what do you have on the patient who's brought in the emergency department, who's seizing and hypotensive bradycardic? What do we know about him? Does he have a history of cardiac problem? Does he have a pocket full of medications or prescriptions that may lead us to thinking that this could be overdose? Does he have a history of depression? And then there's our physical exam. We go from history to physical and we look for things like mentation. This guy's probably going to be postictal, but one of the pearls about calcium channel blockers versus beta blockers is that for their blood pressure and heart rate, the calcium channel blocker patient is usually awake and alert as compared to the beta blocker patient who may be obtunded. So that might help us there. Is there anything focal? Does he have stiff neck? Is he afebrile? Is he hypothermic? What are the other physical exam findings that may help us determine. And then we go on to some laboratory sorts of investigations. And I consider a cardiogram to be an investigation. So is there any clue on a cardiogram? Do they have the Salvador Dali mustache on their cardiogram so that we're thinking digoxin? Are they hyperkalemic? So there's drugs like digoxin that cause hyperkalemic, and you're going to see the peak T waves, the widening of your QRS. Another clue to sodium channel blockers on a cardiogram is the wide QRS and the RR prime and AVR. So you have clues there. The calcium channel blocker will usually be hyperglycemic as compared to the beta blocker patient who will usually be normal glycemic. So just getting a point of care glucose in the recessed bay might be a clue that this is a calcium channel blocker as compared to something else. Well, that's great. You put all that stuff together. So I just want to, those two great pearls about distinguishing 
beta blocker overdose from calcium channel blocker overdose. One is that calcium channel blocker overdoses tend to cause hyperglycemia, right. whereas beta blocker overdoses generally don't. And the other one was beta blockers tend to cause decreased level of awareness, whereas calcium channel blockers don't. They're usually awake and alert. That's the classic picture of the beta blockers, depressed level of consciousness. Okay. Of course, you can throw all that out the window when there's multiple ingestions, which it seemed like when, when I worked when at St. Mike's, that was kind of the general rule. Okay. So this patient came in seizing and he settled with one dose of diazepam. Dr. Austin, when it comes to seizures, how are they managed differently in a tox patient in general compared to just the usual algorithm that we go through in a patient who's seizing, who say has epilepsy or who has a brain tumor? So I think that right off the bat, we start with sort of the same few things. We're always going to check at glucose in any patient who's seizing and correct that if that's the etiology or the possible reason why the patient's seizing. And then the next step in the management of a seizure would be to give a benzodiazepine and a good dose of a benzodiazepine. And in toxicology, that's really our biggest tool would be benzos because those are going to sort of suppress any of the excitatory effect that if you've got a drug on board, that that excitatory effect that that drug could be having. So the key thing is that we're going to give a benzodiazepine and then we're going to give another drug that's going to continue to enhance the GABA activity in our brain. Whereas in a non-toxicologic seizure, we might give an anti-epileptic medication like phenytoin or Dilantin. We don't do that in toxicologic seizures. There's a few reasons for that. Sometimes our toxicologic seizures are caused by sodium channel blockade in the brain Dilantin is going to worsen our sodium channel blockade because it's actually a sodium channel blocker too. But also toxicologic seizures are really because of diffuse sort of excitatory activity throughout the brain. They're not because of one irritated focus of neurons in the brain. So you got to suppress everything and you do that with things like benzodiazepines. Our next line are going to be phenobarbital. Our next line after that would be something like a propofol. I think you might also think outside the box occasionally because you mentioned already that yeah. opioids can cause this picture and we might give naloxone. There are some opioids that actually are seizurogenic hmm. or epileptic, what's the word? Epileptogenic. Epileptogenic. That's a good word. I like that. There's some opiates out there that can cause seizures. Right. Huh. Which ones? Meparidine is the classic one. Okay. The other ones cause it just because they cause hypoperfusion. And so if you don't get enough blood to your brain, you can seize. Sure. So I think the other thing to think about is that if you have a patient who's seizing and for whatever reason you think that you might have a sodium channel on board, you should give doses of bicarb. So in a tricyclic overdose or bupropion potentially, I would definitely give doses of bicarb cocaine, stuff like that, amps of bicarb to treat your right. seizure. Okay. Yeah. So just to review there in terms of your seizure algorithm, skip phosphenatoin or phenytoin. Get it out of there. Get it out of there because yeah, that's a sodium channel blocker and they could be actually seizing from a sodium channel blocker. And it doesn't deal with the underlying pathophys of what's going on. Yeah. yeah. So it's really about that GABA. So right. benzos, benzos, benzos. Dr. Thompson, I remember you saying in one of our other podcasts that benzos are probably the safest medication to use in general in talks and especially for someone seizing. We want to avoid things like haloperidol, which can actually lower the seizure threshold because we see a lot of agitated tox patients. So skip the phenytoin or the phosphenytoin. And we want to enhance GABA with all the benzos, all the barbs, propofol, stuff like that. 
Benzos and barbs. Yeah. There you go. All right. So we've talked a little bit about a general approach to slow and low. We've talked about the differential of slow and low. We've talked about how to handle seizures and tox patients in general. Let's start to talk a little bit more in detail about our approach to the cardiovascular drugs, the beta blockers, calcium channel blockers, and DIG, and what our management approach is going to be. So Dr. Austin, could you just outline for our listeners what your general management approach is going to be for these drugs, assuming that you don't know exactly what drug they took yet? So I think when I'm imagining this patient in front of me, the bottom line is that they look really sick. Their heart rate's super bad. Their blood pressure's really bad too. This is going to be sort of a full-on resuscitation. You're going to need two IVs. You're going to start off by giving them an IV fluid bolus, probably of a liter, if not two liters. But at the same time, there's a bunch of other things happening. Any patient that's bradycardic, I'm probably going to try atropine up front. If I have a suspicion that this is because of some type of toxicologic cause, namely a beta blocker or a calcium channel blocker, I'm going to treat that with IV calcium. The key cornerstone of management of these type of presentations, bradycardia, hypotension due to cardiotoxin, would be high-dose insulin euglycemic therapy. And I think we'll get to that a little bit later, but you're going to be giving these patients bigger doses of insulin than you've ever given in your life. That's probably after you give them that IV fluid bolus and a dose of calcium though as well. Okay, so you're going to do your usual ABCs, general supportive care, give them some fluid, and the top two things you're going to be thinking of, calcium and high-dose insulin. I'll just add that once we've started to run the high-dose insulin, it can actually take a little while, about 20 minutes, to really kick in. So you will probably be starting norepinephrine or epinephrine as well at the same time to buy us a little bit of time and support this patient's hemodynamics. Now, what about decontamination? Decontamination is a really tricky issue, but the truth is that if you're suspecting this patient has a really bad drug on board, you need to think of it. Who can you decontaminate and how do you decontaminate becomes the bigger issue. Our best friend, I think, in toxicology is going to be charcoal for decontamination, but it's got to be in the right setting. And a patient whose airway is not protected yet, who's altered with a heart rate of 30 and a BP of 70 over 40, we can't go and give a dose of charcoal until we've protected that airway. But Above and beyond, it's going to be charcoal. I think that once your airway is protected in a patient like this, to dump a dose of charcoal down an NG tube is probably the right thing to do. Though the truth is that they could be several hours out of their ingestion and there might not be anything in the stomach. It gets a bit tricky. This would be a great time to call your poison center. <laughs> <laughs> I think that theme will be repeating itself a few times in this podcast. We're going to get into the details of high-dose insulin. We'll get into the details of exactly how we're going to manage decontamination, which kind of decontamination, and the indications for each a little bit later. So we've given our bolus of normal saline. We've given an atropine trial. We've given calcium, and we've started our high-dose insulin. And the next thing that happens in this case is the patient's girlfriend arrives with an empty bottle of atenolol. So Dr. Austin, now that you know that this is an atenolol overdose, how would you manage the patient differently? So now we've got the girlfriend who's saying that probably what he's done is he's ingested his own atenolol. And I think that what that raises in my mind is this is one of the beta blockers that we can dialyze. And is there going to be a role for dialyzing this atenolol? 
The other thing about beta blockers and the high-dose insulin is that they do not respond to high-dose insulin the same that a calcium channel blocker might. And so you would be pushing this high-dose insulin to doses that can be upwards of 8 to 10 units per kilo per hour as an infusion, which is not usually appreciated. 8 to 10 units per kilo kilo per hour. hour. Wow. You know, I think that the other consideration that a lot of people would have at this point is this is a beta blocker and should we be also treating this patient with glucagon? Our experience is that that's a pretty controversial topic and we'll come back to it, I think, in a little bit. (laughs) All right. Okay, so we've got this patient who's had an atenolol overdose and we've given the fluids, we've tried a trial of atropine, We've given calcium, we've started our high-dose insulin and maybe bridged them with some norepinephrine in the meantime. We've called our dialysis unit for consideration of dialysis. Of course, we called our poison control center before we did any of this. (laughs) Let's talk a little bit about the different kinds of beta blockers. So atenolol is dialyzable. I understand that many beta blockers aren't. Dr. Thompson, what are some of the key differences that we need to know about the different beta blockers in terms of how we're going to manage them? I think the first beta blocker consideration is, is this a propranolol overdose? Because propranolol is the worst beta blocker out there. It's got significant sodium channel blockade properties. It crosses the blood-brain barrier. It becomes a drug that then is seizurogenic. And so a propranolol overdose can classically present with seizures, hypotension, bradycardia, sodium channel blockade features, et cetera. So you would treat a propranolol overdose slightly different than you would some of the other ones. There are three. Um, so the atenolol, the acetabutalol, sodalol are classic beta blockers that we think of being able to dialyze. That's exactly the kind of situation that you want to speak to someone like yourself, Dr. Thompson, on the phone and call the Poison Control Center to find out whether that particular beta blocker would be amenable to dialysis. Right. Okay. So we're going to be talking about ECG a lot when we talk about our DIG toxic patient. But what about beta blockers? What are some of the typical findings on the ECG you'll see with a beta blocker overdose? So the biggest finding I'd say would be a bradycardia, along with sort of a bradycardia, you can see any type of block, any type of AV nodal block. You can see complete heart block, a sinus bradycardia, junctional rhythm. Propranolol, as we've sort of talked about, has this sodium channel blocking property. So with propranolol, you might see a widened QRS and you might see the tall R wave and AVR to suggest that maybe you've got some sodium channel blocking properties on top of that. The other specific beta blocker that you might see something with is sodalol, which has some potassium channel blocking properties. So your QTC might be prolonged in that kind of an overdose. All right. So propanolol is sodium channel blocker, so you might see a wide QRS. Sodalol is a potassium channel blocker, so you might see a prolonged QTC. QT. Prolonged. Yeah. But most um, of the rest, you're just going to get the sort of bradycardia and all those rhythms that come with it. Sure. Yeah. So that brings up, you know, if you've got someone, say, with some high degree AV block, really bradycardic, what's the role for pacing in the beta blocker overdose patient? Is there a role? You could try it, but like the atropine, it probably will be non-responsive to it. You know, I think it's well known in the literature and through my experience is that you will have difficulty getting 
capture with any type of beta blocker or even calcium channel blocker overdose. If you are going to try it, try to pace somebody transcutaneously first and don't bother with doing all the steps and wasting your time establishing a transvenous pacemaker if you can't get captured transcutaneously. It's worth a shot, but don't expect it to work because often you just can't get captured. So in treating our beta blocker overdose, uh, you had mentioned glucagon. So let's get into a little bit more detail about glucagon. It is controversial. You know, on the one hand, there is little evidence that it's effective. I've seen it cause vomiting many, many times. <laughs> so it can cause vomiting, which especially in someone who you're worried about protecting their airway is not going to be a good thing. On the other hand, you know, it may actually save a life. So I understand that there's this controversy. What is the controversy exactly? And in what situations might you go for it? Might you actually give glucagon? So I am particularly against glucagon, so I'm not the one to talk about the pros of glucagon. It's eloquently an interesting drug. If you've got your beta receptors blocked on your myocardium and you've got another way of increasing the intracellular energy, which is the glucagon receptor causing cyclic GMP to be increased, et cetera, et cetera, I won't go into all the details of it, it's eloquent, yes. And so if it works to override what other receptors are blocked, that makes sense. But my experience has been that, and the literature supports that there are side effects from it. It can cause the vomiting like you suggested, which is a vagal response. What does the vagus nerve do? It causes hypotension and bradycardia. So it exacerbates your cardiovascular problem in some cases when you're using it, besides the aspiration risk that you've been talking about. There are very few case reports in the literature where it has worked for beta blockers. There are as many where it hasn't worked. It's a very expensive drug as well. To give someone the usual bolus of 10 milligrams up front will cost you about $1,500 in Canadian dollars this day and age. And then to suggest a patient be maintained on it will cost you all of the glucagon that's available in your hospital as well as a significant number of dollars. Not that the overdose patient doesn't deserve it, but if it's controversial, it may cause downsize, it may cause your worsening of your cardiovascular effect, then I would tend to steer away from it and go directly to the high-dose insulin personally. I think the only counterpoint I'd say that if I have a patient that's circling the drain, I will probably give them a dose of glucagon. Do I think it's going to work? It probably won't if they're that sick, but I think at that point you're throwing the kitchen sink at them. There's no evidence to suggest certainly that it's any better than anything else. And there's evidence to suggest the other things that we have are a little bit more effective. So we've talked about the general management of beta blocker overdoses. Let's talk about just some of the pitfalls that you've seen. So Dr. Thompson, you've been taking calls at the Poison Center for many, many years now. What are some of the pitfalls you see in beta blocker overdose patients? I think number one is that people don't appreciate that beta blocker patients can get so sick. People still die from them all the time. They're out there all the time. There's so many cardiovascular patients. So they can get very sick. They can die from beta blocker overdoses, number one. Number two, people don't push the high-dose insulin to the degree that we would like them to. 
I understand eight units per kilo per hour is a massive dose, but beta blockers don't respond as well to high dose insulin as do calcium channel blockers. And so you need to be very vigilant that every 15 minutes you reassess your patient. And if it's not working, you can bump that up. You can always replace the glucose. So yes, people do get hypoglycemic with this regimen. But you get to a point where your insulin receptors on your myocardium and such are so saturated that we're not getting any more hypoglycemia than to a certain degree. So yes, you need to check your potassium. Yes, you need to check your sugars. But you can keep pushing that insulin to higher and higher doses so that it acts like an inotrope, a nonspecific inotrope at the myocardium. And, you know, as you're pushing the high-dose insulin, you're going to have to support this patient, at least in the interim, with doses of norepinephrine and epinephrine. But as you're doing that, as the high-dose insulin starts to work, you're going to be able to use less doses of these vasopressors that are going to cause extreme vasoconstriction in all of your end target organs and in all of your tissues. So, so suffice to say, these patients have to be monitored really carefully and reassessed often. They're super sick. You're going to have your ICU colleagues down there very soon to help you manage these patients for sure. You're not going to be sending this patient home. This patient's not going home. (laughs) (laughs) We knew that from the beginning. (laughs) All right. So let's just do a quick review here of the general approach to low and slow. First, you got to think about the differential of low and slow in general. There's non-talk stuff such as MI with cardiogenic shock, hyperkalemia, myxedema, and spinal cord injury. And then when it comes to the talk stuff, it's not just these three cardiac drugs that we'll be talking about in this podcast, but also opiates, alpha-2 agonists like clonidine, and sodium channel blockers can present you low and slow. In terms of how to tell the difference between a calcium channel blocker overdose and a beta blocker overdose, remember that calcium channel blockers prevent insulin release and so cause hyperglycemia, whereas beta blockers tend to cause a decreased level of awareness. Now, what about tox patients who are seizing? How is our management different? Well, first of all, skip the phenytoin and rely instead on larger doses of benzodiazepines. Once you've given lots of benzodiazepines, your next go-to would be phenobarb, and after that, probably propofol. Remember also that for sodium channel blockers like propanolol or cocaine or bupropion or TCAs, that you want to give bicarb if they're seizing. Now, in terms of your general approach to managing the suspected low and slow overdose patient, we want to do the usual ABCs. We want to give fluids. And we want to consider decontamination, usually with charcoal, which we'll get into the details of later. Next, you want to do a trial of atropine, one milligram IV. It may have very limited effect. And you can try transcutaneous pacing, but it too is unlikely to work. And remember not to waste your time with transvenous pacing if transcutaneous doesn't work. Next, you'll give calcium for sure for calcium channel or beta blocker poisoning, but For digoxin, it's a little bit more controversial, and we'll talk about that later. Next, you want to start your high-dose insulin, and we'll get into the doses later, but suffice to say that you're going as high as 8 to 10 units per kilogram per hour. Now, insulin takes about 30 or 45 minutes to work, so you need to start the insulin early. That's one of the biggest pitfalls in the management of these patients is not starting insulin early enough and not giving it in high enough doses. 
while you're starting it, if the patient's still really sick, you're probably going to want to start your vasopressors like norepinephrine. And what about glucagon? Well, it's controversial. Our experts believe that glucagon can be given as a last resort, but even though the mechanism of action is elegant, they don't recommend it routinely in beta blocker poisoning because it can cause worsening hypotension and bradycardia, as well as vomiting with aspiration risk. It's expensive. You'll deplete your hospital supply of it for one patient, and there's really no decent evidence that it saves lives in beta blocker overdose. Now, not all beta blockers are amenable to dialysis, but the ones that are include atenolol, sotalol, natalol, and acetabutalol. And remember, in terms of the particular beta blockers you have to really watch out for, propanolol is probably the worst. Remember that it's a sodium channel blocker, so it will widen your QRS. And it also crosses the blood-brain barrier, which will lead to CNS depression and seizures. So that's case number one, an approach to the low and slow and beta blocker poisoning. Next, we're going to talk about a pediatric case of a calcium channel blocker overdose, where we'll focus on decontamination and illustrate the notion that one pill can kill. On to our second case. A three-year-old girl was found playing with an open container of her grandmother's diltiazem CD, 240 milligrams. Grandma is unsure of how many pills were in the bottle prior to finding the child, but there were 10 pills left. The patient looks fine, GCS is 15, vitals are normal, ECG is normal. It's one hour after the girl was discovered, you're in the ED, and the nurse asks you, what do you want to do? So this three-year-old girl may have taken one or two or three or more long-acting diltiazem pills. Dr. Austin, first, are you worried, not worried, why, why not? This is a really great case because it's something that we get called about at the Poison Center, cases just like this all the time. And I have to say that a little bit, I empathize with the eMERGE doc who looks at this kid, and it's a two-year-old kid, an hour out of this ingestion, who's probably running around their department. And they get advice from the poison center that we think that we need to watch this kid. And I'll talk about that in a minute. And the eMERGE doc sort of thinks we're crazy. But the truth is that this is a kid who I am a little bit worried about and I think needs to be in the emergency department 100% and has the potential to get really, really sick. Anton, there's also the literature that suggests that there are tablets that one pill can kill or teaspoon amounts where one teaspoon can kill. It's kind of artificially constructed in terms of, you know, it's the largest tablet that's available of a particular drug. So deltiazem, that would be a 360 milligram tablet. And you look at any child as being 10 kilos, you divide that out and you say, well, that's potentially one tablet of a calcium channel blocker would be 36 milligrams per kilogram. And then the literature suggests that 35 milligrams per kilogram is the LD50. So that's how this all this literature was actually contrived. But there are lots of case reports where it is true, where a single tablet has been enough to kill a child. The calcium channel blockers are in that category. A big dose of a beta blocker, for example, a single opioid tablet could kill somebody. Flecainide, so some of the antidysrhythmics or other medications that could kill, a single tablet could kill a child. 
a tricyclic. Sulfonylurea causing hypoglycemia, stuff like that. Right. For sure, like Liburi and stuff. So we don't know that this child may have had none of this medication and was just playing with them or could have had a single tablet or could have had several tablets of this 240 milligrams of the Cardiazem to CD that you suggested. We have to keep that child until we know that that child is going to be fine. All righty. So assuming that this kid might have taken something within an hour, that brings up the topic of decontamination. So let's get into sort of the nitty gritty on decontamination because this is something that's always confused me. Dr. Thompson's going to start our discussion on decontamination with the option of lavage. To lavage a patient is a choice that you know has been entertained in the past and the literature is not quite so adamant against lavage, basically say shouldn't be used in the routine care of the poison patient, but maybe in the patient who presents early, very sick with a really bad drug for which we have no other treatment. The other thing about lavage is that you have to put down a huge tube down the back of a protected airway. So you're putting an ET tube in first, and then you're putting down an Ewald tube, which is a 36 to 40 French. It's not going to go in a three-year-old, number one. And the only way tablets come up that are by coming up side ports, which have a very small actual diameter to them. And so Cardia's MCD is a big capsule. It is not going to come up the size of that Ewald tube. So we're not going to entertain it for this child. So what else is left? We've got activated charcoal, which has fallen out of favor because of some literature that's been, you know, out there from the 90s, that you should be using it within the first hour. But Cardiazam is a really bad drug. It's a drug that could kill you, and it could kill you in a single tablet amount. In this particular girl, I would try and encourage her to take at least a mouthful of activated charcoal. Now, remember that activated charcoal for kids comes as a 25-gram bottle, and this is a 240-milligram tablet. So if we're trying to get that 10 to 1 drug ratio, we need 2.4 grams of activated charcoal. We don't need 25 grams of activated charcoal to bind all of the cardiazem that may be down there in the stomach. Hmm. I just want to clarify Um, that for a sec. So I've always just thought of charcoal for the adult one gram per kilogram. You're done. But you're trying to get a binding ratio. You want to get enough charcoal down there to bind the drug that's there. And that's not dependent on how much you weigh. Right. If you could just review for us that again, so how you calculate your charcoal dose, especially for pediatrics, which... So we think that the best binding is about a 10 to 1 drug ratio, 10 times the amount of activated charcoal to the amount of drug that's been ingested. So if she took one tablet, we're talking about 240 milligrams of drug that she's taken, and we want 10 times that, or 2.4 grams of activated charcoal would be enough to adequately bind a single tablet. So that's one-tenth of the bottle of activated charcoal that we have available for kids. Get her to take a couple of mouthfuls if you can. And then we might be able to bind everything that was down in the stomach. Because we don't know how many tablets she's had, maybe half a bottle would be extreme. If you know how much was in the bottle at the beginning, there's only 10 tablets left. We can calculate what the worst possible scenario was. 
and therefore give her 10 times that amount of activated charcoal to be able to adequately bind it all. Because this is a bad drug, she's there at an hour. I would try and get her to do it even though it's beyond that magic hour that some people talk about. Okay, let's talk a little bit more about that magic hour. So I've heard, you know, one to two hours and then with a long-acting drug, you may want to extend that out to three or four hours. How do you decide when your cutoff is going to be? I think, Anton, you're touching on why decontamination is such a tricky issue and all the little intricacies of it. What we're trying to do here is provide charcoal to bind up any drug that's in your GI tract. And really we're talking about in the stomach or maybe in the upper part of the small intestine. We know that there are certain drugs that are going to hang around in the stomach or in the small intestine beyond that one hour mark. Some of those drugs might be things like extended release formulations that are meant and designed and formulated to stick around a little bit longer. We know that aspirin, one of the effects that it has is it actually causes the pylorus of the stomach to go into spasm. So there's likely to be some aspirin sticking around in the stomach beyond one hour. Things like anticholinergics and opioids, Opioids. because of their properties, are going to delay gastric emptying. So they're going to be there maybe up to four hours after the ingestion. So... Those would be some of the considerations for times when we would say, let's go ahead. It's been beyond that one hour, that one golden hour. Let's go ahead and give a dose of activated charcoal anyway, especially if we're dealing with a pretty bad or worrisome drug, all of which the drugs that we've just mentioned are. Okay. So so let's come up with a good, short, but important list of which medications that we'd consider giving charcoal for beyond the magic one hour cutoff. So there's opiates. There's aspirin, there's anticholinergics. And there's a million drugs that have anticholinergic properties. So yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And then the extended release medications. Anything else we need to add to that list? I think there's drugs that cause concretions, and you would consider it for those as well. So one example would be theophylline. We know that theophylline is even a bit trickier when it comes to charcoal, but it can cause sort of a bezoar or a concretion. And so we give charcoal beyond one hour for that. I'm going to add one more thing about charcoal, if that's okay, Anton. We've just made a really big deal about charcoal. But the thing is that there's a bunch of patients who come in whose airway is not protected or who may be altered, and we're not going to be intubating them because they're maintaining their airway, but they still aren't sort of awake and alert. I think you have to be careful and not give those patients charcoal if their airway isn't protected. And that's because we know that one of the big side effects of giving charcoal is that people can aspirate and develop a pretty severe chemical pneumonitis. So we support charcoal 100%. Your patients got to be awake and alert or your airway has to be reliably protected in order to be able to give it safely. And there's some drugs that are going to cause early seizures as well. So we'd be very careful with those drugs. They may be awake and alert now, but they may in five seconds have a seizure and then the charcoal's down there or they're in the on the way of taking their charcoal, they could aspirate as well. So you've got to know the history and the expected effects of the drug that the patient's taken. Okay. So that brings up the topic of which drugs should we definitely avoid charcoal in. So one of them is a patient that you expect might seize. Another is they're not protecting their airway as well as you'd like them to. There's There's classic drugs that are not bound to charcoal, so you wouldn't bother. Some of those drugs would be things like lithium or iron or some of the hydrocarbon or an ethanol or something like that. 
there's no real role for giving charcoal in those cases. Absolutely. Okay. So what once seemed to be a very simple thing, giving charcoal within an hour <laughs> to pretty much everyone is now not such a simple thing. You have to consider if the drug is going to be bound by the charcoal. You've got to consider the airway. You've got to consider, is this epileptogenic? I love that word. <laughs> and you've got to consider if it's extended release or if it's aspirin or if it's an opiate or if it's an anticholinergic. So we've talked about lavage a bit. We've talked about charcoal. What about whole bowel irrigation? What are the indications for whole bowel irrigation? It's one of those things that we never want to do because it's a messy, big, messy disaster. And the nurses do not want to do whole bowel irrigation ever in the emergency department. When is whole bowel irrigation indicated? You know, I think it's a very valid question in this case. This is a patient who's a young person who's taken one or more of an extended release preparation of a drug. Is this somebody that we should be giving whole bowel irrigation to? I think the quick and to the point answer is no, I would not give whole bowel irrigation to this patient. There's a few reasons for that. One, she's in within the window to give charcoal. Let's do that. Two, the bottom line with whole bowel irrigation is that there's no evidence to suggest that it has ever improved an outcome of somebody who's been given it. The idea behind whole bowel irrigation is that you're going to give a huge amount of a laxative to get somebody to sort of flush their GI tract out of all of the drug. And it is true that when we have been successfully able to do it, i.e. when a patient's able to complete the process, that you do get tablets in the rectal effluent, as they say. But there's no evidence to suggest that those patients do any better in terms of their outcome of their overdose or of their drug. We consider doing whole bowel irrigation in specific situations, the odd drug that is taken in an extended release formulation in probably massive amounts. You might consider it for the drugs that are toxic that really don't get absorbed by charcoal at all. Those would be stuff like lithium and iron, maybe potassium. And then in body packers, we would consider it as well. But the the massive amount of drug sort of situation. The massive amount of drugs and the massive amount of extended release. The average sort of just a few tabs of an extended release formulation, there's no indication to give it. There's also a ton of problems with it. What happens is that these patients, if they've legitimately taken their drug, they're really hypotensive and they're not perfusing their gut well. So they can't actually peristalse this laxative through and they just end up with completely distended abdomens, huge residuals in their NG tubes, and it just doesn't work and it ends up stopping. You know. All right. So you may want to consider whole bowel irrigation in... The cocaine body packer. Right, the yeah, the body packers. Or the lithium overdose. And maybe the massive amount of a extended release preparation. But there's really a lot of controversy into literature and no good case reports even that it saved somebody's life or made a difference in their outcome. So we've covered decontamination. Let's get back to this case. Let's say this three-year-old who may have taken extended release diltiazem, you've given some charcoal to in the 10 to 1 ratio, assuming that let's say you decide that they've taken at the most five pills and you do your calculation, you give them the charcoal. How else are you going to manage this patient? Let's start with monitoring. I mean, first, how long are you going to monitor this patient for? When would you be happy that the drug is cleared 
or that they didn't take the drug at all? When would you be happy to send them home? And how do you monitor them? In this particular case, it's a bad drug. It's extended release, but actually having done a, a review of the literature in this, certainly for calcium channel blockers, trying to come up with a protocol, the average time to onset of symptoms, even with slow-release preparations for calcium channel blockers in particular, is 2.6 hours. So it doesn't mean that they're clear at 2.6 hours. It means that they should start to have some symptoms by then. So this little girl, I would, to be extra cautious, would keep her for in the emergency department for six hours. I would expect that she should start to have some symptoms, maybe not peak symptomatology by two and a half hours. But on average, they will get some symptoms, maybe start have a relative bradycardia, et cetera, maybe a little bit lethargic, something like that, that might give you an indication that they had actually taken the drug and had absorbed some of it. I would monitor her with an IV in place, i.e. like a, a lock. At the one-hour mark, she's awake and alert and running around. At the three-hour mark, she may be bradycardic hypotensive, and you can't get that line. So I would stick a saline lock, a saline lock into this girl early on. You can take it out at the six-hour mark if she continues to be asymptomatic before you send her home. But you're going to want that access if she gets worse. All right. So that's monitoring. What happens if she does start to become symptomatic? How are you going to manage that situation? So in that case, we've got a pediatric patient who has become symptomatic from what we're presuming is a controlled release diltiazem tablet, and that we're putting ourselves on the management of a classic calcium channel blocker overdose. So we're going to come back to the basics. We're going to give an IV normal saline bolus. At this point, we'll be using pediatric dosing. I would give this patient a dose of calcium. I would get an ECG, probably consider giving atropine. And then we're going back to our high-dose insulin and if we need to support their blood pressure, we'd give a vasopressor like norepinephrine or epinephrine again. That was awesome. That was like all of calcium channel blocker management <laughs> in, in seven seconds. seconds. <laughs> <laughs> Great. We're going to be going over calcium channel blocker. Yeah. You know, it's a kind of thing that for people who haven't studied this, it's hard to remember. Oh, so we're going to be repeating it a few times to uh, sink it into the memories of all our listeners. Anything else to add about our three-year-old who is potentially overdosed on a calcium channel blocker? I think the only thing I could say is about the poison prevention aspect of this case. You know, she was playing with grandma's diltiazem CD. The cap was off. Now, child-resistant, nothing is child-proof. Child-resistant means that in five minutes, the average toddler is unable to get into that container but the average definition is 80% of children can't get into it. So if you've got a bright or an adept, you know, two, three-year-old, 20% of them are going to be able to get into it if left alone with that container for five minutes. So the message is those containers shouldn't be left out for these children to see. They should be locked up and out of sight. Lock up your drugs. It's <laughs> <laughs> a good take-home point. Case number three, an 86-year-old man with a history of CHF and hypertension on digoxin, ramipril, and furosemide presents to your ED with the classic weak and dizzy. He complains of nausea and diarrhea that's developed over the past few days. He was recently diagnosed with pneumonia and is taking clarithromycin. 
His ECG shows a junctional rhythm at 40 beats per minute, and his blood pressure is 105 on 60. He's afebrile and satting well. So, since this podcast is on tox, we know the diagnosis is going to be a tox one. And since we're talking about low and slow cardiac drug poisoning, we know this case is going to be ditch toxicity. So we'll cut to the chase. Dr. Austin, why is this patient who's been on DIG for a few years coming in toxic today? Anton, I think that that's the question that we need to ask ourselves anytime we're seeing a patient who's on digoxin who comes in with basically any complaint because digoxin toxicity can present in so many vague ways that there's a good chance that whatever their chief complaint is, it's related to the digoxin. However, You've actually given us a really great case. The few highlights that I picked up from the case is we've got an elderly patient who takes furosemide, who recently has had a pneumonia and was given a dose of clarithromycin for it. And all of the symptoms that he's having sound like digoxin toxicity. Why could that be? So we know that digoxin toxicity or the effects of digoxin are worsened when somebody's made hypokalemic. Furosemide as a loop diuretic is a classic drug that depletes somebody's potassium. So whenever somebody's on a loop diuretic and digoxin, they are at greater risk of digoxin toxicity. The second thing is you mentioned pneumonia. There's nothing in the case so far that's telling me that this patient's floridly septic, but there's a good chance that he's possibly a little bit volume depleted. And digoxin that's excreted renally, maybe he's got an AKI, a mild AKI, that's led to him not excreting or eliminating his digoxin as he would have maybe a week before when he was totally well. The third piece of this puzzle, which I think is what I have learned to ask every patient I'm seeing on digoxin, have you been started on any new drugs lately? Because digoxin is a classic medication that we see drug-drug interactions associated with it. His family doctor just started him on clarithromycin. Something about digoxin, and we're not trying to get into the nitty-gritty here, but it's a key drug that is a substrate for a protein called PGP. So PGP spits digoxin back into our gut or back into the urine and prevents their levels from getting really, really high in our body. Clarithromycin is a classic drug that inhibits that enzyme and causes digoxin toxicity for that reason. Wow, so this patient's just packed with risk factors He's got for like digitoxicity. And then yeah. this patient's also got GI symptoms, and it's kind of the chicken and the egg argument as well. Is he digitoxic, causing him to get nausea and vomiting, or nausea in this particular case, and anorexia? Diarrhea is not classically part of digoxin toxicity, but can happen. But he's got nausea and diarrhea, so he gets further you know, hypovolemic and hypotensive, uh, wasting other electrolytes, et cetera. So worsening his worsening, AKI. Right. Worsening. All right. Now, as you alluded to, Dr. Austin, that DIG can have a breadth of presentations. Dr. Thompson, can you just give our listeners kind of an idea of the kinds of calls that you get at the Poison Center in terms of the breadth of presentations of digoxin toxicity? Well, you've presented us the classic patient is the elderly patient who comes into the emergency department with a vague symptomatology. Sometimes it's a visual disturbance that they're complaining about. Most often it's nausea or it's weak and dizzy sort of the classic weak and dizzy sort of presentation is common with digoxin. There's many other times when they come to the attention of the poison center because they have some medical presentation, they're short of breath, 
they're having chest pain and it's noticed by the emergency physician that they're on digoxin and a digoxin level gets sent off. It's not necessarily, as Emily alluded to, that they're there because of dig toxicity, but some other medical issue. They're on digoxin, they get a dig level sent. There's not very many patients that are not elderly that are on digoxin anymore. So that's why this 80-year-old gentleman is classic presentation. But the usual symptoms are a CNS symptom of depressed level of consciousness, weak and dizzy, the bradycardia contributing to weak and dizzy. The CNS confusion as well, and then the GI symptoms. I think that one thing that's important to highlight with digoxin presentations is that there's a fairly big difference in how people present and a little bit how we treat them and how we approach them, whether they're presenting chronically digitoxic, i.e. I'm a patient that takes digoxin every day and for some reason my digoxin levels suddenly become toxic versus that patient that's maybe taken an acute digoxin overdose in a suicide attempt or something like that. That would we would call an acute digoxin overdose or an acute digoxin toxicity. That's a little bit of a different patient. And the approach and the management and the way that patient looks is often a little bit different than the chronic digoxin patient. They might have more cardiovascular complications. They might have a lot more nausea, more specific symptoms than just this vague malaise and unwell symptom. Okay. So the acute overdose, we're really worried about cardiotoxicity and the chronic overdose. They're a lot more vague and it's something that we have to really go searching for. Certainly there can be cardiac toxicity with a chronically dig poison patient. In fact, when you look at which has higher morbidity, chronic dig toxic patients actually have much higher mortality than acutely dig poison patients. It's just that they present a little bit more subtle and vague. Like you've said, we got to dig for it a bit harder. All righty. So let's move on to the ECG for digoxin. And the reason why I say just for digoxin rather than for dig toxicity is because sometimes I see learners get mixed up between dig effects on the ECG and dig toxicity on the ECG. So before we get to the dig toxicity, could you just review for us what the classic dig effect on an ECG is as opposed to toxicity? The classic presentation on dig effect is called the Salvador Dali mustache. This big scooping, usually in the very lateral leads, so V5, V6, often there's a scooping of the ST segment. But they're usually patients who are on digoxin for a reason, so they're usually atrial fibrillation with a controlled rate and the scooping. They may have a cardiomyopathy, they may have big QRSs, their voltage may be high, because they usually have a cardiomyopathy and or some other underlying cardiac issue. Those are dig effects. All right. So th- those are the dig effects. What about dig toxicity? What do we look for on the ECG when we suspect someone might have dig toxicity? You know, I think the way I approach ECG of a patient I'm thinking about dig toxicity is I think to myself, what are the two sort of main things that I'm expecting DIG to do to the myocardium. And one of the things I know that digoxin does is it causes myocardial irritability. So I might see a patient who's got atrial fibrillation, usually with a slow rate. So that's a classic. You might see ventricular tachycardia, ventricular dysrhythmias, a bidirectional ventricular tachycardia. You might see frequent PVCs or other atrial tachydysrhythmias. All of these things fit with myocardial irritability. The second thing that we know digoxin does is it causes 
blockade at the AV node or a conduction disturbance. So then you're going to see things like a junctional tachycardia or a junctional rhythm. You'll see AV dissociation, a heart block. Low and slow. Low and slow. Exactly. Yeah. Alrighty. I think the one thing that you will never get with digitoxicity, whether it be acute or chronic, you will never get rapid atrial fibrillation. Any other dysrhythmia is possible with digoxin. Okay. So you can get pretty much any dysrhythmia with digoxin except rapid AFib. Certainly if you see something that looks like a slow AFib, red flag for dig, there's the classic bidirectional VTAC. And then all the bradycardias you can think of pretty much. And all the blocks. All, all the, the junctional blocks. rhythms. Yeah. Mm-hmm. In the acute dig poison patient, rather than the chronic dig poison patient, digoxin works by blocking potassium entry into cells. And that then can lead to hyperkalemia in the acute poisoning. So you might find cardiogram findings that are consistent with hyperkalemia. Absolutely. We're going to get into the whole controversy about treating dig toxicity and hyper-K in terms of calcium, which we talked about on our hyper-K episode. But first, let's talk a little bit about dig levels because it's actually not so simple. Dig levels need to be interpreted with caution since you can be definitely led astray with them. Dr. Austin, what what are some of the pitfalls you see in interpreting digoxin levels? So... You cannot reliably interpret your digoxin level unless that digoxin level has been taken six hours after that patient had either their last dose or their overdose. So if you take it earlier than that, your digoxin is going to be artificially high because it takes about six hours for the digoxin to get to all the different tissues and to distribute in your body. And that's the digoxin that causes the toxicity is the one that's distributed in the body. What you're measuring before that six-hour mark is digoxin that's artificially high in the blood. That's Ah. one of the pitfalls. you got to wait six hours. So that's a false positive. So if someone takes digoxin an hour ago and their level is sky high... Don't do anything. Don't do anything yet. I think that there's another pitfall as well, though, when it comes to digital levels. And that's because people can actually be toxic at doses within the normal range which really messes absolutely everything up. But I think it's worthwhile to think about that if you have somebody, if your normal range of digoxin, your upper limit is about two, in Canada we use nanomoles per liter. If your upper limit is two nanomoles per liter and you have a patient that's about 1.9 but has a slow AFib on their ECG and is feeling really dizzy and weak, they could easily be ditch toxic. That's when your friendly poison center might help. Both false positives and false negatives. All right. So that's just really important to keep in mind. I mean, if you do take a level more than six hours and it's sky high, then that's kind I of a that no-brainer. That's, that's probably the take-home, Anton, is that you can't measure it before six hours. Right. So when it comes to dig toxicity treatment, let's talk about this patient. So they're in a junctional bradycardia there are presumed chronic dig toxicity. So we'll talk about chronic dig toxicity, which we see more often and which has a higher mortality first. How are you going to treat this patient? Back to basics. We're going to do ABCs. We're going to get two IVs in. My first line is going to be give this patient a little bit of fluid. I'm conscientious of their age. They have a bad heart, stuff like that. It's a little bit more tricky. The second thing is I'll always try a dose of atropine in this patient. It's going to be safe. And then When it really comes down to it, we have to be thinking about digifab and whether we would like to give this patient digifab or not. 
I've got a patient that I think is symptomatic from digoxin with a dysrhythmia, I'm going to be giving this patient a dose of digifab. I will probably say that I'm going to wait for my six-hour level, though, to know what I'm dealing with, assuming my patient's stable enough. All right. So there's going to be a lot of issues here. So first, if you see someone in a junctional bradycardia or a high-degree AV block, really bradycardic, and they're unstable, you're going to think about reaching for your pacer. What do we have to know when it comes to pacing? Which patients should we try and pace? Should we try and pace them at all? What do we need to know about pacing in the patient who comes in really low and slow, digitoxic? I think you're not going to reach for transcutaneous pacing. If you have a patient that you can't wait for the six-hour level because they're so unstable, then you should be reaching for digifab. You shouldn't be reaching for your pacemaker pads. Bottom line. Yeah, exactly. And especially you're never going to want to put in a transvenous pacemaker into these patients because it causes increased myocardial irritability and you can get into more trouble. You stay away from it. So generally speaking, in digitoxic patients, you want to stay away from pacing if you can. For a bridge to get your digifab, is there any role for pacing then or would you try atropine? I think Emily suggested that the, you know you could try atropine and see whether they were responsive to it. That might be a bridge. And there are probably hospitals that don't have Digifab readily available. You could try pacing. The suggestion is that you always go with lower energy and that you not try and pace them any higher than 50 to 60 beats per minute because of that increased irritability that your myocardium might have. Okay. So really the only role for pacing is if you don't have digifab available or as a bridge, you might try it after you've tried atropine. What about things like esmolol or lidocaine, phenytoin, magnesium? There's this whole kind of long list of things to possibly try. In my opinion, it's distracting you from the major issue, which is that you need to bind up the free digoxin that's in this patient's body. And the only way to do that is to give digifab. So to me, all of those other things are really just distractions. And your first line is going to be digifab. Your second line is digifab. If you're having a patient who's actively going to ventricular dysrhythmia is in front of you and your digifab is around the corner, I would probably push a bolus of lidocaine. But the truth is that that lidocaine is just a bridge as well. What that patient needs is digifab. It's most common for the chronic digit poison patients not to have ventricular fibrillation or ventricular tachycardia. Those very rapid Dysrhythmias are more characteristics of the acute one-time poisoning with digoxin as compared to the chronic patient who's more likely to have the bratty dysrhythmia or the block. And so lidocaine wouldn't be indicated for those sorts of things and esmolol wouldn't be indicated for that. Those would be possibilities for the acute poison patient where you don't have digoxin readily available for you. Okay, so for the chronic toxicity, it's digifab, digifab, digifab. For the acute toxicity, it's also digifab, digifab, digifab. But in case it takes time to get the digifab, in the chronic patient, you can try atropine. You could try pacing, pacing, but avoid transvenous pacing. Just do transcutaneous. In the acute patient, again, as a bridge, you might want to try a bolus of lidocaine. If they're having ventricular dysrhythmias. Okay, got it. Now... We've been talking about digifab, digifab, digifab. What are the exact indications for digifab? So some patients might have 
sort of a toxic looking dig level, but clinically they're okay. Or clinically you might suspect that they're quite dig toxic, but their ECG and their level aren't bad. What are the specific indications for digifab? The classic ones that are suggested are hyperkalemia. And there actually is evidence, case control, et cetera, evidence that hyperkalemia in the acute poison patient indicates mortality. So potassium of five or greater has an LD50 associated with it in the setting of dig poisoning, acute dig poisoning. So that's an indication for giving digifab, a potassium of five or greater. Wow. That's not very hyper-K. I mean, you know, we're not talking seven or greater, or eight or greater, five or greater potassium is one of the indications. Okay. By history of ingestion, so if you have history, and this is the acute poison patient again, if you've got a history in a child of 4 milligrams of digoxin or 10 milligrams in the adult, and you don't have a dig level available to you, you have a a malignant dysrhythmia, then that would be an indication for giving digifab. For the unstable ventricular dysrhythmia, for sure, is an indication, the setting where you Got renal failure, for example, because digoxin is, you know, eliminated by renal excretion solely. So the indication would be patient with renal failure and an elevated dig level. Margaret's mentioned the ventricular dysrhythmias, but also unstable atrial or supraventricular dysrhythmias would be another indication for when to give digifab. There's like variations of this list in every different textbook, but it comes back to some really common themes. And I think the common themes are a ventricular dysrhythmia, an unstable atrial dysrhythmia, an ingestion that you can't verify, but it's a pretty big dose. I think they talk about like 10 milligrams of digoxin. Hyper-K with potassiums, you're right, just over five millimoles. And the levels are suggested. High serum levels, they say as well, for one to give it. So those are sort of the common things. But every textbook you look in, it's like a little tweak on it. And they've added a few lines to that list but it's some very The right. other indication might be the patient, and this is the chronic ditch poison patient, who you know otherwise would be able to go home from the hospital if it weren't for their ditch level. So they come in with that weak and dizzy. They otherwise would be able to go home because they don't have congestive heart failure. They haven't had myocardial injury in this particular presentation. If you could give them some digifab, reverse their dig level that was elevated and causing them to be nauseated, for example, and at risk for having more dig toxicity, you gave them a dose of digifab, you were able to discharge them from the emergency department, that might decrease their morbidity because of all the hospital-acquired injuries that you can get. And the acutely poisoned patient where there was multiple ingestions. So if they're a cardiac patient, they've got a calcium channel blocker, a beta blocker, and digoxin available to them. You can get rid of the dig by completely binding all the digoxin with a dig immune fragment. And then you could just deal with the beta blocker or the calcium channel blocker, for example. All righty. So just as there seems to be quite a variation in what the precise indications are for digifab, it seems to me that there's also quite a variation in the dosage, how to give it. I love this topic. (laughs) I know, it's so crazy. Nerd. (laughs) Listen, I think this is a really great question. I'm going to say something up front. If you have a patient in cardiac arrest, The word on the street or in the textbooks or wherever is to give that patient 20 vials of digifab. 
If you have a patient in cardiac arrest, I would agree with that. Give them 20 vials of Digifab. I'll tell you, however, there's no evidence to back that up. Where that came from was the manufacturer's product insert. Fine. Cardiac arrest, we're going to do everything we can. But this is where it gets a little bit more interesting. And this precise dosing of Digifab is a bit complicated, and I'd encourage people to call the poison center if they can, because we'd love to chat with them about it, not only because some of us think it's cool. But here's what I think is important, and I'm not trying to make it really complicated. Digoxin is a small molecule. It gets into your bloodstream, and then it goes all over your body. Digifab is a massive molecule. It only stays in your bloodstream. The only digoxin that it's going to bind is what's in your bloodstream. If you give extra Digifab, you are just going to pee that out or eliminate it renally. So you should be giving the amount of Digifab that's going to bind the digoxin only in your blood. There's some newer stuff coming out, and it's stuff that I believe in that suggests that if you are a chronically dig poison patient, give that patient one vial of Digifab. It's going to bind whatever digoxin you have in the blood. Wait an hour. If after an hour your patient is still bradycardic or still showing signs of ECG changes suggesting digoxin toxicity, give another vial of Digifab. Don't rush and just give five vials of Digifab up front. Each of those vials is a minimum of $700, and you're just going to give it to a patient who's going to pee it out. In an acute overdose, some of this new work that's coming out says give two vials up front. Wait that 45 minutes, and let's see where you're at. If you've still got that unstable bradycardia, redose it, or ventricular dysrhythmia. Again, cardiac arrest, 20 vials. Great. That's actually, that's pretty simple. So chronic overdose, concept of it, but yeah. give one and then repeat as necessary. Based on clinical findings, because we're going to talk about it in a minute, you can't actually, once you've given a dose of Digifab, you can never repeat your digoxin level again. It's unreliable. It's going to be sky high. So you got to go clinically. What does my cardiac rhythm look like? What's my ECG looking like? You can follow a serum potassium as well. All right. So you're going to give the Digibind. If it's a chronic overdose, like in this patient, you'll give one vial, then you'll reassess the ECG, you'll reassess them clinically, you'll reassess the K, and then maybe redose them. In the acute digoxin toxicity, you'll give two vials up front and again reassess the K, reassess the ECG, reassess them clinically and see if you need to redose. And in the cardiac arrest, you're just throwing the typewriter at them. 20 vials. In fact, there is some literature that suggests that you could do that as 10 and 10 in the cardiac arrest patient. You give 10 vials of the Digifab up front as a push. You wait, certainly not the 45 minutes, you wait 10, 15 minutes. And if they haven't responded to it, you give the other 10. All right, let's get on to a controversy that we've talked about before in our Hyper-K episode, and that is treating Digitoxic patients with Hyper-K with calcium. So we know that the old stone heart is kind of a myth, but it's still quite controversial as to whether or not it's advisable to give calcium for someone who's hyper-K and digitoxic. Dr. Thompson, what's your take? So I think the literature out there is not very helpful to guide us with what to do. We have to separate this out again into the acutely poisoned patient. So has taken a lot, a large overdose of digoxin, has now blocked their sodium potassium ADPase. They can't get potassium into the cells 
both the myocardial and the skeletal muscle cells, and you get hyperkalemia. That's an indication of digoxin toxicity when you have hyperkalemia in that setting. There isn't any help in the literature. There's one case report mixed in with 120 patients of who were chronically digit poisoned who got calcium in the setting of digoxin toxicity. It may have been inadvertently and did fine. But we don't have a case cohort series even of a whole bunch of acutely poisoned digit patients to help guide us in that regard. Certainly in the chronically digit poisoned patient, you would expect that those patients should be hypokalemic. So this is a patient who has been on digoxin for a long time. Their first dose might have made them hyperkalemic, and then their kidneys take over, and because hyperkalemia is not accepted, the kidney spills your potassium, and you end up eventually being total body potassium deplete. If those patients get hyperkalemia and an elevated serum potassium, it's because they've gone into renal failure and now they're retaining their potassium. So in those cases, the literature seems to be fine with you giving calcium to stabilize the myocardial membranes, if that's what you believe in, and probably lower risk. The stone heart phenomenon is not going to happen in those patients because they don't have, you know increase intracellular potassium and calcium that's going to put them into trouble. Okay. So that's the chronic patient who you expect to be hypokalemic, but if they're in renal failure, they may become hyperkalemic. And in those cases, then calcium would be advisable. It's probably considered to be safe. Yeah. Okay. And what about the acute patient? The acute patient, like I suggested, is because they're hyperkalemic, that's an indication, that's our monitor for digoxin toxicity. Those patients don't need anything to shift their potassium or stabilize their membranes. They need digimmune fragment. So Dr. Austin, you had mentioned that dig levels become useless after you've given the digifab because they're going to be sky high no matter what. So that begs the question, how do you actually monitor your patient? Do you just monitor them clinically if they're weak and dizziness goes away. How do you actually monitor the patient? What's the best way to monitor the patient? Exactly, Anton. So these patients need to come into a monitored setting and we can no longer rely on digoxin levels to tell us how they're doing. We have to look at their heart rate. We have to look at their ECG findings, what the rhythm is, and we can follow their potassium. They need to be admitted to a monitored setting for sure. I think the last point that's interesting and worth knowing from an emergency medicine perspective is that The type of molecule that digoxin is is something called a cardiac glycoside. And this is a molecule that's found in a ton of herbal supplements or plants or natural supplements that people consume for whatever reason. And there's lots of case reports in the literature, including ones recently from our colleagues in Vancouver, where people came in with a very classic digoxin-like presentation, but swore up and down that they hadn't taken any digoxin. But in fact, what they'd done is they'd gone and they'd foraged for a plant that contained a cardiac glycoside. So, you know, if you've got the right picture of a patient who sort of got this weird junctional rhythm with a bradycardia, nausea, a little bit of vomiting, feeling weak and dizzy. You can think about cardiac glycoside or digoxin-like compounds and mention that maybe to the internist if this patient's not going home because there's a lot of other things that will cause it. Alrighty, that's like foxglove and yeah, that right. sounds like a board exam question. <laughs> yeah, I don't know if the point is to know. I think it's just if you have it in your radar, like as emerge docs, the more you know, you can pick this stuff up and mm-hmm. 
we don't have to talk about how to treat it or anything like that right now, but there is a role for digifab in those patients, even though it's not exactly digoxin. There is a role for getting a digoxin level, even though it won't be accurate. It'll just tell you you've got something on board that you weren't expecting to have. So, hmm. Okay. Yeah. Is the, the sort of typical story, they're going foraging in the forest <laughs> and then they come back looking digitoxic? That could be a typical story. There's, as Emily suggested, lots of substances you know, the natural products are often contaminated. There's no regulation of things that you buy over the internet. And there's all sorts of products out there that are supposed to improve your, you know, stamina that are make you <laughs> feel <drive>. good, you know. <laughs> all this stuff that we hear about and these people have taken this. And they just end up making you vegan dizzy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> On to our last case. A 34-year-old woman with a history of depression comes in 90 minutes after intentionally ingesting 50 verapamil tablets. Her heart rate is 34, blood pressure is 80 on 40, and she's slightly altered with a GCS of 14. So let's talk about specific drugs to give for an adult calcium channel blocker overdose. So what's the first drug you're going to reach for? So first, she's going to get an IV fluid bolus for sure. And once that's done, I think the first thing I'm going to do, I'm going to reach for two things at once. I know that I've got somebody who's bradycardic. I'm going to give a dose of atropine at 0.5 milligrams in this patient. But at the same time, I'm thinking calcium channel blocker, I'm going to give a dose of calcium. If I've got peripheral IVs, I'm going to probably be giving calcium gluconate. If I have central access, which this patient, let's be honest, she's going to need central access, then I would consider giving calcium chloride as well. Great. And then we've talked about the importance of early high-dose insulin therapy. Let's get into the details of that. So we've given our bolus, we've given our calcium, either gluconate via peripheral IV or calcium chloride via a central line. The high-dose insulin, how exactly are you going to give it and how are you going to monitor the patient? So what we're going to give is a bolus of insulin, so regular release insulin. We're going to give a bolus of a unit per kilo as a push. And you follow that with a unit per kilo per hour, and you monitor that for 15 minutes. What did that do to her heart rate and what did that do to her blood pressure? We actually expect that high-dose insulin is going to work better for pressure support than it is for heart rate. And there is some evidence that if you were to do an echo, or a bedside ultrasound of the heart, and you found that the heart was contracting poorly, that high-dose insulin is going to be more effective in that circumstance than when the heart is contracting properly, and it's more peripheral vasodilatation that's causing the hypotension. So high-dose insulin is first a unit per kilo as a push, and then it's a unit per kilo per hour, and you can put that in a peripheral IV, and you can titrate that up every 15 minutes by 0.25 units per kilo per hour or 0.5 units per kilo per hour until you get good ventricular contraction. If you do your bedside ultrasound, just a quick look, and you see that the heart is contracting better, then that's really the upper limit of where you want to go with your insulin. Wow. So just to put this into perspective, yeah, exactly. a, a little skinny guy like me, I'm 150 pounds, 70 kilograms. 
So you're going to be giving me 70 units of regular insulin bolus and then 70 units per hour and then titrating up by 0.25 units per, per kilogram. Kilo. So per hour. Per hour. Wow. So I mean over a few hours you're giving me like 300 we have units. had we have been involved with patients at the poison center who are on 1000 units of insulin per hour as a total dose. Like this is huge doses. And I think that the way to just to drive it home is when we think about our DKA dosing for insulin, we're thinking of a dose of 0.1 units per hour. We're going 10 times that dose. Absolutely. So the obvious question then is what happens to the glucose? So yes, these are massive doses. And yes, potentially we can get hypoglycemia. In the calcium channel poison patient though, we're unlikely to get that hypoglycemia because all of our calcium channels that release insulin and affect insulin have been blocked as well. So we need to monitor the glucose every 15, 30 minutes or so, but it's unlikely to actually cause hypoglycemia, which is absolutely amazing. Well, that's just it, Anton. And especially in that first hour, you're going to be monitoring your sugars every 15 minutes. But then sort of beyond one or two hours after starting the insulin and stabilizing on the dose, you can just be monitoring it every hour. These patients do often require dextrose infusions as well in some form or another. We don't recommend that we give extra glucose until their sugar drops below 11. But they come in with sugars of 25. The calcium channel blockers. The calcium channel blocker patients. Okay, so in terms of monitoring these patients, while we don't expect them to get too hypoglycemic, we do have to monitor their glucose about every 15 minutes for the first couple of hours and then maybe Q1H after that. What about the electrolytes? You we know, use insulin to shift potassium. So yes, we have to watch the potassium. I've never seen potassium drop below that, which we would need to supplement and realize that we're only shifting the potassium with high-dose insulin. We're not causing potassium elimination from the body. So you have to be careful. You don't want to give too much supplemental potassium for when you are turning your insulin down. As Margaret's mentioned, we're going to be titrating our dose of infusion of high-dose insulin about every 15 minutes. I think that what I find the usual requirement is that this patient needs some other type of vasopressor to help support them during this time. And in those situations... The choice of vasopressor is usually guided by, I would say, a bedside ultrasound. So if you do a POCUS and look and see if there's a lot of myocardial depression, you might choose epinephrine over norepinephrine. But if your heart is contracting really well, but you're super hypotensive, I might choose norepinephrine in that situation. I think we mentioned this earlier, but the advantage of giving the high-dose insulin up front and then continuing to titrate it up, you may still need a vasopressor on board. These patients are super sick, but eventually or soon after, I guess one of the two, soon after, the idea is that you won't need as high a dose of a vasopressor as you would without the insulin because the insulin is helping to support your myocardial contractility and your myocardial function. Okay. So, so far we've given a bolus of fluid We've given a trial of atropine, 0.5 milligrams IV push. We've given IV calcium gluconate or calcium chloride, depending on whether we have a central line or not. Then we're starting our IV insulin early. Don't wait. 
and at the huge doses that we were describing. And if the patient's unstable while we're getting the insulin going and before it actually starts to work, we want to consider giving vasopressors. And that'll be dictated by, of course, the thing that saves us all the time in the emergency department that everyone is using all the time. No, that was just being facetious. But And of course, we will be saved by POCA. So the decision of which vasopressor to give will be predicated on the gestalt of the contractility of the heart that we see on POCUS, whether that's epinephrine or norepinephrine. We don't find that we need as high doses of the high-dose insulin regimen with the calcium channel blockers as we do with beta blockers. So it's often that these patients will respond to that one unit per kilo per hour, maybe pushing it to two units per kilo per hour. But we don't usually have to go to the massive doses of insulin that we would for a beta blocker. Alrighty. So that's another pearl in terms of the distinction between managing calcium versus beta blocking. Let's say in this patient, we've done all of that and the patient's still not doing well. Now they're kind of peri-arrest. What's your next move going to be? So, you know, I think that what Margaret's talked about is we will have been titrating up our insulin a little bit. But the other thing that we have in our back pocket would be intralipid emulsion therapy. So let's say you decide to give this patient lipid emulsion therapy. First, how does lipid emulsion work? There are theories as to how it works. What we think most probably as explanation is that it acts as a lipid sink and you've got a fat-soluble drug. You provide it a fat globule for it to hide within and therefore pull it away from the effector cells so that your free verapamil levels are virtually zero. They're sitting in the circulation but surrounded by fat, so not able to interact with the myocardial receptors. Alrighty. So that's how it works. And how do you actually give it? I've also heard kind of a variety of protocols. What's kind of the simplest protocol that you'd recommend to give lipid emulsion therapy? There's a 500 mil bag of TPN therapy that's 20% lipid. Okay. So if you just need a really quick fast, you've got an arresting patient, you just draw out 100 cc's from your 500 cc bag and push it. Effectively, you're giving the rest of that 500 cc bag over 30 minutes following, and that's your infusion. Then Great. you're done. Simple. I love it. <laughs> Usually. <laughs> okay. Now, back when people started using lipid emulsion therapy, it was my perception that there wasn't quite the attention to the potential complications. You know, if we're using this in the peri-arrest patient, we're not really too worried about the complications. But in the rare case that we might use it earlier in the not-so-sick patient, what are the potential complications of lipid emulsion therapy that we have to be on the lookout for? It's been reported that you can get an increase in your amylase in your lipase, so therefore get pancreatitis from it. Got a peri-arrest patient and they get pancreatitis. If you save their life, then you know that's inconsequential. So you can get biochemical pancreatitis. You have an inability to monitor your patient after that because you can't do electrolytes, you can't get a lactate, you can't get a hemoglobin, for example, because of the interference of the fat with your biochemical monitoring parameters. The other is that potentially you can get fat emboli to your lungs and so therefore have decreased ability to oxygenate your patient. Alrighty, so those are some of the complications. Let's talk specifically about the indications. 
you know, it, it seems to me that people out there have been using lipid emulsion perhaps too freely. So I want to get into the specific indications to use it. Dr. Austin, could you just review for us when lipid emulsion is really indicated? I think that we have to start with the premise that there's only ever going to be a benefit to using intralipid emulsion therapy if you have a fat-soluble drug. So you have to have a drug that's lipophilic that's going to go into that fat compartment that you've just created. The way that we identify fat-soluble drugs is based on something that we call a log P. So when we get a call at the poison center and we're wondering if that drug, that intralipid could potentially be used to treat it, I always look up what the log P or the log D is of that drug. So you got to have a lipophilic drug. What are some examples of lipophilic drugs that we'll use them for? Things like bupivacaine, classic, as a local anesthetic. This is where intralipid always came out of. The calcium channel blockers, there are certain beta blockers, although less strong evidence for it. Some of the tricyclics like amitriptyline, bupropion. Seroquel. Seroquel, yeah. There's a handful of other random drugs. The real question I think that you're alluding to is at what point in the resuscitation of a patient do we give the intralipid for? Exactly. Yeah, exactly. And it's a really good question. And I think if we're going with what the evidence says, that we're going to give it to that patient who's really peri-arrest. There is no good evidence to suggest that there are better outcomes or improved outcomes, and rather there is evidence to suggest that there's a risk if we give it before somebody's sort of peri-arrest. What does peri-arrest mean? That they are sort of in refractory shock despite all of your best treatments, or they're having status epilepticus from a bupropion overdose that is not responding to any of your typical treatments. Maybe in bupivacaine toxicity, there's a little bit of evidence for giving it a little bit earlier. If I'm at the bedside, I'm not going to be giving it to a patient until I think that I don't really have any other options and they're still deteriorating. So my insulin is going to be at a high dose. I'll be running a vasopressor at the same time. And I think my patient is deteriorating further than I would give it. All right. So that's the adult verapamil overdose. Let's review now the totality of the treatment for calcium channel blocker overdose. We want to give a normal saline bolus up front. We want to consider giving activated charcoal if it's within one or two hours of ingestion or if it's a long-acting calcium channel blocker, you might want to extend that out to about four hours. We'll give a trial of atropine, 0.5 milligrams. We'll give a calcium bolus, either gluconate or chloride. And if it's effective, then we start an infusion. If it's not as effective, we're going on to our high-dose insulin, which is the whopping one unit per kilogram IV bolus, followed by one unit per kilogram per hour. And in the interim, if we still have an unstable patient, we want to consider going to vasopressors, either norepinephrine or epinephrine, depending on the contractility we find on POCUS. And if none of that is working, then lipid emulsion therapy, and we grab a 500 cc bag, we pull out 100 cc's, give it IV push, and the rest of the bag we give over an infusion over half an hour. Only thing we haven't talked about is one of the sexiest topics in critical care, and that's ECMO. I guess to start our discussion on this, Dr. Thompson, have we had patients in Ontario with calcium channel blocker overdoses who have gone on ECMO who have survived? I can't answer the latter part of that question. We have had patients in Ontario that 
everything else wasn't working and they were put on ECMO or a left ventricular assist device, some kind of mechanical support while we're waiting for the calcium channel blocker to wear off or to be metabolized and the patient to recover. I don't know for sure that that's actually ended up with a positive outcome. Alrighty. And in terms of other case reports from around the world, what does the literature say? There are case reports for sure sure. that suggest that, you know, mechanical assists of some sort have been effective. You sort of think about this patient, their pre-morbid state. And if it's often an intentional ingestion, which are the ones that get really bad, they normally or often had a healthy heart to begin with and relatively healthy vasculature. And then when we can get them over the hump of that toxicity and over the hump of that overdose, they probably have a good chance of doing well. So there's definitely case reports that support the use of ECMO in these patients. It may be biased case reporting. Exactly. (laughs) When it's effective, you know, it gets put in the literature. When it didn't work, it doesn't. Right. Okay. Suffice to say that it might be worth getting on the phone if you've exhausted all your other possibilities, that echo might be an option. I have the utmost of respect for both of you to be in a field where you're really guided by very little evidence, which makes it a bit more interesting, actually, and <laughs> Maybe opens okay a more for debate. Because we can argue either way. <laughs> yeah. Maybe it makes it easier. Yeah. We can use lots of things off-label yeah. where otherwise ethics would have you know our heads. <laughs> All right, great. Well, that was a lot of fun. Thank you both so much for being on EM Cases. It was a blast. Thanks so much, Anton. Thanks. 